Well, let me say good morning to all of us. It's so uh, wonderful to be here, as has been said, on Christmas morning. Uh, but in particular, we're celebrating the Lord's Day together today, aren't we, as we gather on the first day of the week to worship Him as one body. Uh, I can invite you to be opening with me to Matthew chapter 1. Be ready to hear what we're about to read. It is wonderful to see uh, a number of, it looks like, visitors and extended family members who are with us, and we are grateful that the Lord is allowing you to worship with us uh, this morning. I thought I might just, for a, a quick moment, catch you up on where we are this morning. Uh, for a long time now, we have been walking through John's gospel as a church body. Uh, in, in the last couple of weeks, what we've done is we have stopped to consider the birth of Christ in sort of a preparatory way for this morning. And we've, we've looked at that from a couple of angles. And what we'll do today together is we'll sort of bring all of that together. And here's what I mean. John has been showing us some incredible things about the gospel and about our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, one of them that has been especially significant and pointed out often that plays into what we're going to look at this morning, it goes something like this. We have seen from John's gospel that those whom Christ saves, here's what happens to them because of the grace of God. They hear God's voice when Jesus calls to them. When Christ is speaking, they hear the voice of God. They hear a voice who is trustworthy, who knows them, who loves them. And so they draw near to him when they hear his voice. And the way that that's been described in John's gospel are things like calling his people his sheep. He said, my sheep hear my voice. They know me and they come to me when I call. So much of John 8 and John 10 were really consumed with that picture. Now, add to that another thing we saw in John's gospel, and that is that that identity, being the sheep of God in Christ, that identity is not natural to any one of us. It's another thing we've seen very clearly in John's gospel. That identity depends entirely on a work that God would work in our lives. It depends on us being reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a case that John has made for us in a great variety of ways. But I think we could sum it up pretty simply with what is said in John 3.3. We read there, Jesus said, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Just think about the implications of that. Now we've taken a couple of weeks to think more carefully as well about the question of who at Christmas. Who exactly is this that is laid in the manger? This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. We've not come there yet in the last couple of weeks. And my goal for us is that we would see one thing in particular this morning. I want us to see in a particular way together that we each are in need of supernatural heart transformation if we are going to come to faith in Christ. If we're going to be saved, rescued from our sins, forgiven, brought into the very family of God, what is required is nothing short of a supernatural heart transformation. And all we have to do to see that this morning is to see 
the display of belief that shows up in Matthew 1 and the display of unbelief that shows up in Matthew 2. This is very opportune. We've got two pictures set right up against each other, a picture of belief and a picture of unbelief. And all we have to do is just look at them together and see what's being shown to us. To begin our reading this morning, I'll be reading the first of those two things. We'll read Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. We'll be hearing the display of belief that's seen in Joseph. But just know that before we're done this morning, we'll move well into chapter 2 as well. So I'll be reading Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25 from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You could say that what we're going to find here is a demonstration of the nativity proving John 3.3, 3, that verse in John 3 that we just read together. I think we find proof of what Christ told us there in the display of these two pictures between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Because here's what we're going to see. We're going to see in what we just read, belief in the face of an unbelievable revelation And then right up against that, we're going to see unbelief in the face of already accepted revelation. This really is a profound thing for us to find. Belief, when the revelation being given is an unbelievable one, and rejection and unbelief in the face of divine revelation that has already, in fact, been accepted. This is what we're going to see. Let's look first at belief. And what I would have us notice here, you notice in Matthew's account, what we're really focusing on is Joseph and not Mary. Mary is more focused on in Luke's gospel, but here Joseph is the emphasis. And we should start by noticing the situation that this man Joseph is in here as this begins. Joseph is betrothed to a young woman named Mary. If this is a typical situation, she could have been something like 14, 15 years old. Could be a little older. 
And just think of the excitement around a betrothal, an engagement. We'll see a betrothal for them is not exactly the same as an engagement for us, but we can sympathize with that season in life, right? The plans being made, the way that life is falling into place, maybe like I expected it to. I see the days that are coming ahead. And all of a sudden, for Joseph, things take a very different turn. You see, verse 18, the difficult and painful situation that this turns into. We read in verse 18, When Jesus' mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, just notice that that verse gives us some information that Joseph did not have at the moment. He did not know at first that this pregnancy was a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. All that he knew was that his betrothed is pregnant, and he is not the father. In verse 19, Joseph resolves to divorce her quietly, it says. Uh, Out of concern for her, we should not make too much of that. Uh, It will protect her from some visible shame, but she's still going to be an unmarried woman, pregnant, and as that is known in that culture, this is going to be a tremendous scandal for her, right? He's not sparing her from everything that she's going to go through. His response in handling her this way to divorce her would be the expected and even the appropriate response for him to take. This is where their betrothals are not the same as our engagements. Uh, While they are betrothed, They're not yet married in the sight of God, but for them, the betrothal period itself was already a legal situation. To become betrothed, you entered into a legal contractual situation so that if you need to end a betrothal, there's only one mechanism, and it's the same one as you use to end a marriage. In order to end a betrothal, you have to fill out a certificate of divorce. That's why this is happening as it is. What I would point out for us this morning, though, is that already at this point, can you sense it? This is a situation that is very upsetting to Joseph, very burdensome to him. This would be a public, shameful situation for him to be found in. Perhaps not as much as for her but still there's much for him to deal with. After the betrothal ends, in a way for him, that will not be the case for her, life will be able to go on. You can move past the scandal, be vindicated. Maybe that's the path. Maybe that's the way that Joseph's life's plan will get back on to what he was expecting it to be for himself. But then we have verse 20 which says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph receives this revelation, and he understands it to be what it in fact is. This is a revelation from an angel of the Lord. There's no doubt about that for Joseph. He knows that that's what has happened. And yet, just think about what it is he's just been told in a dream. How his life changed from the time he went to bed to the time he got up the next morning. 
he has been instructed to take Mary as his wife. He was just about finished with the publicly difficult, shameful situation. And instead, he's instructed to accept it, to receive this. And in fact, to do that by entering into a lifelong covenant relationship. And this is going to seal him to the situation for the rest of his life. Jesus, for example, is going to have to deal in his life with disparaging remarks, you could say, about his paternity. We have places like John 8.41. He's debating with his opponents, and he brings up the topic of fathers. And as soon as he does that, they jump on it. And they say to Jesus, we were not born. I mean, they front load the word we. They're emphasizing a comparison here. We were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. They're comparing themselves to him. Jesus has this stigma accompanying him through his life. The scandal follows him. And if it followed Jesus, you can bet it followed Joseph, too. Take Mary as your wife. And take the baby as your own as well. We see that in verse 21 when the angel tells him to name the child and to name him Jesus. Joseph's naming of Jesus is a demonstration of his taking Jesus as his own. He's adopting this son as his own, and thus declaring this child to be the heir of his household as well. We noticed when we looked at the genealogy here in Matthew a couple of weeks ago, that it traces Jesus' genealogy by listing Joseph's genealogy, even though he's not biologically connected to him. What would be the significance of that? Well, it is significant, because when Joseph takes him as his son, Jesus is Joseph's son now. In the world, legally, he is his heir. He is of his line. So he's told to take Mary as his wife. He's told to take the baby as his own. This in and of itself is an amazingly weighty thing to be instructed in. And he wakes up in a very different place than he went to bed. But he's told another thing, too. This angelic messenger tells him, into verse 20, why he should not be scandalized by this move. The angel says, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then furthermore, verse 21, the little thing, this child will save his people from their sins. What on earth do you think Joseph made of statements like that? Please remember, he's hearing about a phenomenon that has happened exactly never in all of the world. We're hearing about something that we've been very well prepared for a long time to, exp to understand that it happens. He's being told in a dream that this woman is pregnant by the Holy Spirit with one who will come, who will save his people from their sins. So he's also then, though, isn't he, being told that Mary has not been unfaithful to him. She's not, in fact, been with another man, and yet she is pregnant. And that this is all the plan and work of God? This is quite a dream he's having here this night, isn't it? And he's being told that this whole insane situation is producing the result of salvation from sin 
for his people. And we could take weeks, months, fleshing out those statements, couldn't we? But that's not our purpose here this morning. What we want to do here right now is simply consider what it was for Joseph to hear these things. He obviously, given what happens, does not doubt that God has delivered this message. He knows that God is behind the message. And yet the message doesn't have any frame of reference to be understood. You think he's wrapped his mind around this message when he wakes up in the morning? And what response does he give? His response is to trust and obey. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You hear obedience on both points. He takes Mary to be his wife, and he names the child. What could be the explanation? for Joseph doing such a thing in a, in a case like this? And I would put the answer in a particular way in light of what we're about to see. Here's what I would say. What's the explanation for Joseph doing this? I would want to say he did not do it because of his intellectual knowledge that God was behind the message. That is not the thing that led him to do this, that led him to obey. He did it because he trusted that God who was behind the message. That's why he did it. I'll say that one more time because this is what we're going to be seeing a comparison of. He did not do it because of his intellectual knowledge that it was God behind the message. He did it because he trusted that God who was behind the message. Now, what's the point of the distinction there? How can I say that this does not stem from a knowledge of God's presence and activity? Not as the driving force. Certainly that's an element, but it's not the driving force. Well, I would say that because of what we find next in chapter 2. Look with me starting at chapter 2, where we find the exact opposite of what we just saw. We just saw belief emerge in the face of an unbelievable revelation. But now we're going to hear about out-and-out, overt, unbelief, rejection in the face of an already accepted revelation. See this in the first 16 verses of chapter 2. Let's read just a bit of that together. I'll read verses, the first eight verses here of Matthew 2. Here comes Herod. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Right? He's trying to figure out how old this child might be. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And stop there for a moment. We know, don't we, that is not what he really wants to do. What he really wants to do, we see in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children. All the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. That's why he's asked them about when they saw the star. He's trying to do the math. This is what he wants to do. He wants to kill the baby. But think about the significance of really the first six verses of what we read in this chapter. He is troubled by this notion of a king of Israel born. Immediately he perceives the threat to his own position and power. He and and the leaders with him, not just him. So what does he do? (laughs) What does he do? He assembles the priests and scribes to ascertain what the Bible has said about where God's Messiah is going to be born when he finally comes. You know this one that we've seen Simeon and Anna waiting for most of their lives? He goes to research and figure out where this one is to be born according to the scriptures. Do you see what that means he knew and understood? It means he knew the scriptures to be actual divine revelation. It means he knew them to be so reliable, therefore, that they could be accessed in order to tell these men exactly which little town to go to. This is where he goes to figure out where to send them to investigate for him. What does that mean here? It means Herod has something in common with Joseph, doesn't he? Herod knows that God is behind the message. He has no doubt of that. He doesn't mistrust in that way. He clearly expects them, doesn't he, to find a child at the end of their search for a star they saw in the east. He clearly expects that child to be the promised Messiah. Why else is he asking, verse 4, about where the scriptures say the Messiah is going to be born? He knows that God is behind the message, just like Joseph did. What does he do with that knowledge? Well, he uses it to try to go out and kill that Messiah, thwart the very purposes of the eternal God, who could declare the end from the beginning and therefore give us Scripture, give us prophecy. Now, what do, we, what do we do with this? These two pictures. And it seems to me it's, this, is, this is very timely for us, that it's really easy on a morning like this to answer that kind of question. Because what this means is that even my belief in the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, come into the world according to the scriptures, even my conviction that that is true only puts me on par with the Herod who tried to kill him. That's all that does. There must be more for us to ask. The question isn't only, do I believe Jesus is who he says he is? The question is, have I come to trust the God who sent him? And therefore to see 
Christ Jesus as trustworthy. My friends, it is a pervasively common experience for us to know people who would very much affirm, who would very much affirm in theory, right, Christ's identity, but who then show no affinity for him whatsoever, no reliance upon him, no submission to him. And what we have this morning is a litmus test that we can pause and consider because of these two pictures set right up against each other at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. We celebrate in this season Christ's coming into the world. But why? Why do we celebrate it? Why am I glad he came to earth? Herod was not glad he came to earth. Why am I glad? He came to earth. See, the reply of God's people is we are glad because we know that without him, we are in utter and complete darkness. He is the light of the world, come into the world. If we do not walk with him, we are in darkness. We don't know what's in front of us. We don't know where to go. We don't know what's right. We don't know how to proceed in our lives. We're in darkness. We don't know how to discern what's good, what's beautiful, what's true, apart from him. If not for him, we would still be in our sins as we stand before a holy and righteous God. If not for him, we would still be those whom scripture says are in rebellion against our maker. Without his sacrifice on the cross, In my place, I am rightly an object of God's wrath and judgment. God's people know and affirm these things, and therefore we are exceedingly glad that he has come into the world. Now, an answer like that to the question means that his coming is more than just true. His coming has fundamentally changed things for me. You see what that means? His coming has fundamentally changed me. And that is true on a number of levels. It's true at much deeper levels even than mere behavior. We usually think in those, when we talk like that, about behaviors. And certainly his coming into the world, ransoming me, making me one of the children of God, giving me eyes to see, giving me a new heart, certainly those things do change things at the level of behavior because God's saving work in a heart renews that heart's affections so that it's actually able to love what he loves. So even in the behavioral level, what the Bible says is now there exists in me a battle, a battle that is sometimes lost. At points, but there does exist in me a battle between the spirit and the flesh. Whereas before coming to know Christ, there was no spiritual battle at all, there was only death inside. That is a change. But his coming into the world with this significance means things even deeper than change in the realm of behavior. There's the change that Paul describes, really, that undergirds all of that. At the start of Romans chapter 5, Paul wrote this Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That is a change that goes way beyond the level of behavior. Because of Christ, our very souls have found their satisfaction in this Christ who has been born. We have peace with God. Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I'm rescued from fear of death. I'm rescued from the lifetime of little deaths by cynicism and hopelessness. I'm rescued from a life of disillusionment because I no longer look to the things of this world to rescue me. I know what the psalmist knew in Psalm 121. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Those are battles in the realm of the heart, the realm of the mind, the realm of the affections that I can now fight and win. That's the change that this belief brings, that itself bears fruit in me. What we find is that the result that this brings in our lives is the same as the results that it brought in Joseph's life in this case. I find that I now can obey God, even when his words exceed the scope of my ability to see or understand. Isn't that what we saw in Joseph? His obedience extended far beyond what he was understanding in that moment or what he could see. Because this one who would speak and who would direct my life, I have come to trust him. It's the question put to all of us this morning. It is not enough. It's not enough just to know of his existence. The Bible tells us that as well, doesn't it? Satan knows quite intimately of the existence of Jesus Christ. The question is, what do we do when we hear his voice? What do we hear? Do we hear a person familiar to us, trustworthy to us? Do we walk toward that voice because we sense safety in it? I have little doubt that in a room, even a room this size, that some, as they hear descriptions, like I mentioned before, of terror of death, of cynicism, of hopelessness, of disillusionment, I have little doubt that some can hear themselves in those descriptions. And my friend, I would suggest to you that you're not hearing those things, you're not hearing any of this this morning, by chance or accident. What's happening to you is this. Your God would remind you that he offers you the freedom and rescue of his son now. He offers it today. He does not promise you tomorrow, but he offers it today. There is a reason that you have felt the way that you have when you walk through life in this world and you feel cynical and disillusioned and hopeless. There's a reason for that. You're not being unreasonable. You're actually seeing this world correctly. But the news of the gospel is that by Jesus coming, everything has changed. Light was coming into a world that is plunged by its very nature into darkness. His coming is the only rescue that is coming. 
but it has come. And that's the rescue that we celebrate at Christmas. He came not just to rescue his people from the evils of the world, but to rescue his people from the evils of their own heart. The evils that if you have any kind of self-awareness, you know exist within your heart as well. And you may be sensing them in abundance of late if God is by his grace drawing you toward himself. This is why the message that we pause deliberately to remember on an annual basis like this is the deepest message of hope. If your life has no hope in it today, the call from God Almighty is to walk toward the hope that he has given. You're not without hope because it's not been given. It has been given. And the call from our loving Father is to walk toward that hope so that we might find adoption and actually become his children as we grab hold of hope in the person of his Son. We saw it last week in Simeon taking Jesus into his arms and feeling quite comfortable saying as he held this baby, my eyes have seen your salvation. What am I holding in my arms? I'm holding God's salvation in my hands. For those who know Jesus Christ and who therefore have come into the family of God by adoption that's achieved in Christ, what's our call today in light of the things that we're seeing? You know it, but I would remind you of it. Our call is to fill this day with rejoicing and celebrating, expressing the peace that is in fact ours because of the birth of the Prince of Peace. We are not a people who try to hide from reality. We know the sufferings and hardships of this life. But our celebration is of the very kind that our Lord describes in John 16, 33, when he says to his disciples, those whom he has then called his friends, he says, in this world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have over, <clears throat> I hate when that happens in the middle of a sentence, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's in confidence of that hope, that peace secured forever for us and seated in heaven, untouchable. It's in confidence of that hope and that peace that we celebrate. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge that in the incarnation, perhaps more than any other event, we see how far your ways are above our ways. As the eternal Son of God would come and take on flesh and dwell among us. Father, forgive us for the ways in which our thinking, our imagination perhaps, is too small when we think about your power and mystery and greatness. And today we thank you for the gift of your son. And we thank you for the gift of faith that would allow us to echo Simeon's words. 
when he made that proclamation that his eyes had seen your salvation as they looked on the baby Jesus. Father, we ask you this morning, fill our hearts with your joy and peace today. We do want to continue to faithfully weep with those who weep, even as we rejoice with those who rejoice. But Lord, I pray that even uh, those among us who are walking through a especially difficult, painful seasons. Lord, that you, the, the celebration of today would even be able to push some of that aside for a time and give great cause for smiles and sighs of relief. Because we know that there is no, there is no threat, there is no danger, there is no hardship on this earth that compares to eternal separation from you facing the cup of your wrath. And your son in coming into this world has, has saved us from that fate. And we thank you. And we do breathe a great sigh of joy and relief and peace. We thank you for the great victory won by our Savior on behalf of his people. Lord, help us today. Draw us nearer to him in trust and adoration. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.